Thank you for listening to the podcasts of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. If you've been helped by these podcasts, we encourage you to help us conclude 2022 in a strong financial position. Please make a generous donation to Grace Anglican. You can find out how to do so on our website at graceanglicanonline.com and simply click the giving tab. Thank you so much for considering it. Let us pray. Help us, Almighty God, to really believe that we will never be alone. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. The first reading from our Lessons in Carol's service uh, comes from Genesis, in which the Lord says, It is not good for a man to be alone. Yeah, I don't know about that. Uh, I have a house with four ladies in it, and it's the holidays, and there's no school, and there's a lot of sugar, and a lot of energy, and I'm an introvert. It's not a recipe for, uh, for a zen-like state, at least not for me. Uh, some of us really do crave a little loneliness, or at least aloneness, but as everybody in this room knows all too well, aloneness is not always a gift. In fact, most of the time it really isn't. Uh, it's often not good. And I find the not goodness of aloneness to be especially pertinent around the holidays. That is those times that are filled with memories and nostalgia. The rich moments that we recall that give us a sense of inner solidity or belonging. Uh, and, and maybe the sense of aloneness has gripped you at this time of the year. I don't know if it has, but maybe it has. If it hasn't gripped you in the last few days, it certainly has within 2022. Because maybe you have grown children and they're not coming home for the holiday and you feel alone. Or maybe you have a friend who has inexplicably ghosted you. And no matter how many times you've tried to reach out, text, and call, they don't engage with you anymore. And it leaves all sorts of questions. Did you do something? Did they do something? Is there some sort of miscommunication or offense? But you feel alone. Or maybe it's a parent that is struggling very deeply with dementia or Alzheimer's, and they don't recognize your face anymore. And so it's made things strained and awkward. Or maybe somebody in your life, somebody precious to you has died. And so your dining room experience this Christmas is a little more hollow and emotionally empty. Or maybe you've struggled to have children and you see all these other families and they have children and you don't and you feel awkward being around them and you don't want to be asked questions about it, but you feel like you're on the outs. Uh, or, or maybe you have a lot of secrets in your head tonight, you know, a lot of blood under the bridge, you know. A lot of things that happened in the past and other people don't know it and you're afraid to share it and so you live with that world in your skull and that's hidden away from everybody and makes you feel isolated. I was talking with a priest recently who was visiting a, a woman who she was actually an opera singer uh, and she was admitted to Bellevue Psychiatric in uh, New York City. And, uh, and she could hear the opera singer from way down the hallway because she was singing in this loop. She was actually singing from the opera Faust. There was a character named Marguerite who was locked in a dungeon, and she was singing the aria 
over and over again as Marguerite would sing, sola, 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 alone, alone, alone. You know, you've heard the bleak and tired old refrain, we're born alone and we die alone. This is why I find it so comforting that the first lesson from tonight's service begins with a critique of loneliness, a divine critique. The sacred Lord says that it is not good that the man should be alone. Well, that's an odd thing for God to say because in Genesis 1, God started to call a lot of things good. You may remember the beautiful epic of Genesis 1 in which God creates things, stares at the things, appreciate the things, and then labels the things good over and over and over again. Everything seems to be grand in the initial days and moments of creation. And then all of a sudden, the Lord speaks a different word, an aberrant word, an antithetical word. He says, looking at the man, that it is not good, not good, that this man lives in isolation with no partner, no one near him, no one to relate to him in the same way. Uh, And so he says, not good. And then the Lord in his grace ends the isolation, forms woman from man, and then uh, the text beautifully says that both the man and the woman shine with his image and likeness, and that they are to cleave to one another. In other words, to have a harmonious, intimate bond with one another. Um, That's heaven's design. Heaven's design is this togetherness. Uh, We see that in Genesis, in fact, the image of God is most clearly reflected in that togetherness, not just in our individuality, but in our bonds. And that is especially expressed in marriage, but human bonds of love and companionship can be expressed in friendship and mentoring and other caring relationships. But that's heaven's design because it is not good for us to be alone. It is much better when we are companioned in this life. And if I were to ask you, what made your best Christmas best? I guarantee you, if you thought about it for more than 10 seconds, it had nothing to do with money. It had nothing to do with presents. It had nothing to do with food. It had everything to do with relational harmony. For you feeling completely at home and safe and loved with everybody in the room. That's actually what creates heaven on earth, if you will, especially in these times. And that's how things rolled for a a little while in Genesis until chapter 3. It didn't last long, you know. Genesis 3, we traditionally call this the fall narrative, the fall. But what did the, the first marital couple fall into? Well, they fell back into isolation. That is, in part, what the fall means. The fall is a human retreat back into that which is not good, back into isolation, even a worse isolation. Uh, They isolate in many ways, but here are the two principal ones. They isolate from God. This is why they run away and hide their bodies and hide themselves in the forest as if the divine visage can't see them there, right? They, um, they, they defy God in the narrative. God gives them one stipulation, not a million, one. And they say no to the word. And they instead align themselves with the serpent's interpretation of reality, the serpent's religion, right? They become devotees of that which is basest. And what did the serpent tell them? Essentially this, whatever God is, God holds out on you. He doesn't give you what is best. 
He's withholding what is best. And you could know as God knows, feel as God feels. You could have a little omniscience of your own if you just sink your teeth into this dark sacramental fruit and just see what happens. It's worth the experiment. Uh, And so that's what they do. They seek self first. They seek self above everything. They seek self over the will of God. And by the way, that is the de facto religion, not just of our day, but of every day. Every day, it's the de facto religion. When people tell you they're not religious, or they're not spiritual, or they don't believe in anything, people say all sorts of things. The question is not what people say, the question is how people function. And people very often function uh, as as devotees of that serpentine religion of the adoration of the individual self above everything, to be cut off from the source and to worship only the self. Notice even the language that we use to describe our lives, that we talk about my truth. We talk about finding my true self. We even talk about my tribe, that is, people deemed acceptable by me because they agree with me until they don't agree with me anymore, and then they're not my people anymore. This is why we go backpacking in Colorado to find ourselves, or why we want to go to Colorado (laughs) to do a little self-discovery. But this is part of fallenness, is that we isolate from God and we put ourselves above every throne and dominion. In the fall, Adam and Eve and their new serpentine religion say to God, essentially, I will live without any need of you. Uh, I will be wise on my own terms. I will reign supreme for I am the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. And friends, let me just tell you, like with some sympathy to that perspective, it works until it doesn't. I mean, it'll get you a little traction for a little while until it doesn't anymore. It's funny, I have a friend who's uh, just uh, two weeks ago had 20 years of sobriety from alcoholism. It's a beautiful thing. Very happy, very celebratory. I asked him, I said, what's your secret? What's your secret for 20 years of success? This is what he says. I learned to distrust my deepest instincts. Now, people can say, well, that's low self-esteem. No, it isn't. It's brilliance. It's enlightenment. It's something of God that is settled in his brain and in his heart to distrust some of his deepest instincts. But Adam and Eve in their new marital relationship and also in their new satanic devotion, they isolate from God and run away. But it's more than that. They also isolate from other people. Notice the blame language in the narrative of Genesis 3. What does the man say to God? By the way, he's a little mouthy. What does he say? It's the woman that you gave me. Think about the tenacity in that. The man is saying, God, you tried to save me from aloneness, and so you gave me a defective partner. And that defective partner was given to me in part because you yourself are defective in your provision. It's a blasphemous statement. And uh, when God turns to the woman, she says, well, the devil made me do it. God doesn't seem to buy either excuse. But they blame, they deflect, they don't take ownership. They don't take responsibility. Instead, they blame someone else. And do we not do this constantly? I would be a better person, but I'm married, I'm married to somebody who always you know, brings me down. I, I, you know, it's the public school's fault, 
or it's that private school that I grew up in, it's its fault, or it's the president, or the former president, or it's climate change, or it's the people that are obsessed with climate change, it's China, I mean, it's whatever, I mean, but it's out there, and it's really scary, but it's not me, it's not me. Uh, when uh, there was a famous uh, a question that was asked in a uh, British newspaper, a uh, very, very simple question that famous people would respond to. And the question was, what is wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton, uh, the famous uh, literary figure uh, of, uh, of English infamy, wrote back and said, uh, Dear sirs, what is wrong with the world? I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Terse, but to the point. He realized that blame is an isolationist tactic. Everyone else is at fault but me. No, when we think that way, we fail to realize that uh, the harm is within us too. And so, friends, we isolate. We isolate from heaven. We isolate from each other. We live in these little silos. Uh, and, and God originally said it is not good for a man to be alone. And so he gave us these bonds that make our lives better and brighter and holier and more sacred and more interesting and more uh, fun and vivacious. And sin comes in and sin is like this pair of rusty scissors that cuts the bonds that give us life. that cuts the vertical as well as horizontal bonds away. Uh, now, we're alone and even when we're all together, we sometimes feel alone. And there are times that even in our aloneness, we get tired of that aloneness. We get tired of even self-saturation. And so we seek attachments. Sometimes we seek attachments from our aloneness. But very often when we do that, we rebond with the wrong things. Or we rebond with things too strongly. Our love becomes hysterical and obsessive. This is what Israel does uh, by the way, Israel, throughout Israel's history, they make all sorts of goods into gods. They do it constantly, whether it's power or romance or cash or image. And we haven't learned. We still do the same thing. But as everybody in this room knows, from trusting power too much to having a bad romance, when we overattach to the wrong things, we end up even more isolated and lonelier than before because we've been let down yet again, and now we have to protect ourselves even more from future hurt. And so that's the Genesis predicament. So what is the Christmas response to the plight of our desolate isolation? What does heaven do? Well, many people think heaven doesn't do anything. Other people think, well, heaven is more of a spectator than demonstrably involved. This will date me, but there was a song sung by Bette Midler uh, from yesteryear, uh, called From a Distance. And you may know the song, but the, the song has sort of beautiful ideas in it. It's if we take a step back from our troubled world and we look at it from a distance, we see that things are really beautiful and we should calm down, right? The lyrics are, from a distance, you look like my friend, even though we are at war. From a distance, I cannot comprehend what all this fighting is for. From a distance, there is harmony, and it echoes through the land. And then there's the chorus, and God is watching us. God is watching us. God is watching us from a distance. The idea is when God perceives us, he perceives only the good. God is the spectator with a bit of optimistic astigmatism. Okay. Uh, in a word, no. No. 
No. Lessons and Carols, this whole service, is about an incarnate interventionism. An interventionism. God does something. No, better, God does everything. He doesn't come to us as the raging volcano. He doesn't come to us just to watch us self-annihilate. Instead, he approaches us with profoundest humility, a humility uh, that is shocking to the mind, a humility that we ourselves personally eschew in our own experience. But he comes to us with humility in order to rebond with us. He chases us down in this infant child. The Old Testament lessons that we heard, especially from Isaiah, foretell of that intervention. Isaiah's audience sits in isolation and in darkness, and he promises them the light of a new prince and a new government who will bring to the world a new Eden, a new harmony, a new attachment between God and the world in which lions and lambs are at peace. And at the helm of this new Eden is a little child who will lead them. And then the New Testament lesson, it happens. The little child who leads them arrives. And he's given in Matthew's gospel this lovely Hebrew nickname, Emmanuel, meaning God with us. The text is clear, controversially clear, that God arrives. God arrives in, uh, arrives in human form, not in the form of a polished political hack or a guru or a fanatic. Instead, he takes the form of a child. And this is... Therefore, my word for you tonight, for all of us, for the whole world tonight, is that Christmas is not about God with us in general or in abstraction. That is God floating around like a spiritual amoeba within our happy emotions or serene memories or picturesque strolls along the shore at sunset. Those are all great, but that's not what Christmas is about. Christmas is about something far more crass. It is not sentimental. This is God with us in the form of a frail, dependent life born into a frightening world of aggression, terror, isolation, and capital punishment. God takes upon himself the common and rough world as it is. He intermingles eternity with umbilical cords while he mutters birthing cries and wriggles in a tight first century pajama set within a rough wooden box. God the judge becomes God our brother, God our son. He enters willfully the caverns of our loss, the emptiness we feel, the nothingness of our lonely experience. He decides to set up shop there, build his caravan there. Bonhoeffer said it beautifully. Who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly? Whoever finally lays down all power, all honor, all reputation, all vanity, all arrogance, all individualism beside the manger. Whoever looks at the child in the manger and sees the glory of God precisely in God's own lowliness. The Christmas infant sparks the beginning of God's rebonding with his isolated rebellion, uh, rebellious creation. He pursues us by his, his enfleshment in order to reattach us to himself and to the world that he loves. He came to end our aloneness to be God with us, to suffer with us, and later, 33 years later, to suffer for us in order to bring us back to God. Emmanuel is here to end isolation from him and from those made in his image. God comes our way so that we might turn back to him and turn back toward our imperfect neighbors because there are people in this world who need you and who need a reflection of that eternal love. 
I have an older friend uh, uh, who is a priest, uh, now retired, who fought in Vietnam years ago, and that war, I can say, and he would say, lives in him still. He frequently tells this story about his war experience that uh, reminds him of how Jesus pursues all of us. So his best friend got caught in a Vietnam firefight, and that same friend was shot several times in the chest and mortally injured. The landscape grew increasingly chaotic and bloody, so the commanding officer sounded a retreat. But my friend, and this doesn't surprise me now that I know him pretty well, my friend ignored his officer's command and entered into the crossfire and got wounded himself. But he managed to crawl back to safety with his friend in his arms. But as soon as he got back to safety, his friend had died right there while being held. The commanding officer looked at him incredulously and shook his head in dismissal, saying, you should have obeyed my orders. As you can see, it wasn't worth it. You risked your life for nothing. But my friend looked at the officer and said, Sir, when I found him bleeding, lying there on the ground, he was barely alive, but he looked at me and said, I knew you'd find me. It is not good for a man to be alone, not good for a woman to be alone. So God did something. God personally intervened. And this is the truth of Christmas. Dear brethren and sistren, you were not born alone. You will not die alone. And you are not alone right now either. There is always someone else there. The one. This is why we light candles tonight. We begin with the Christ candle at the center of the Advent wreath, and then from that candle, we light every candle in the room. A sacred reminder that we are all illumined together by the light of our shared Emmanuel, God with us. And when this life is over, when your many battles and firefights are ended, you will stare at a real face, a historical face, the face of your own loving, scarred Christ. And then you too can say to him, I knew you'd find me. Because he has, and he will. Merry Christmas. Amen. Amen.